Welcome to the Chase Podcast. Dr. Ron Charles is a renowned archaeologist, author, historian, speaker, missionary, and is known as the Christian Indiana Jones. Dr. Charles has spent over 50 years researching and uncovering truths about Jesus Christ and information that proves the historical authenticity of the Bible. Visit cubitfoundation.org for Dr. Ron's books and information about this global ministry. Let's look at the book of Exodus. And we'll read um, the first seven verses of chapter 17. This was after the crossing of the Red Sea. The uh, Israelites were on their way through the Sinai. Now, there's, there's differing uh, opinions about the number of people that were with Moses that he led out. The Catholic Church said there were three million uh, total. The Orthodox Church says that there were six million, which included three million Israelites or Hebrews and three million non-Hebrews, uh, mixed blood. The uh, Islamic point of view says eight million. The uh, Fatima Islamic uh, groups, which is a more um, uh, more uh, liberal group, says that there was uh, there was at least eight million. Um, the uh, uh, non-religious history of the Middle East. Uh, which is taught uh, in many of the schools in Kuwait, uh, um, uh, uh, Oman, um, Iran, uh, Iraq, uh, says that there were at least 8 uh, to 10 million. We know there was at least 4 million uh, historically, 4 million Hebrews, and there was probably at least another 2 to 4 million uh, mixed blood uh, the uh, they call them mixed multitudes in the King James version, and then there was an additional two million Egyptians that chose to to leave with them, and so basically what you're looking at is a is a figure that could be as little as four million people to up to perhaps even ten or twelve million, but what it means is a bunch of people being led by one man, and so. The uh, Egyptian history has a tremendous, tremendous uh, uh, roots level, foundation level history of, uh, of its people. And included with that is uh, the Exodus led by uh, Moses. Moses was heir to the throne. of uh, uh, He was a third in position of Pharaoh. And so th there's lots of very... Um, what do you say, uh, complementary uh, history about Moses that uh, you can find in Egypt. And um, I went to the uh, El Elazar University, which is the only university in the world who um, uh, teaches uh, Islamic Amans. So if you want to be a Islamic clergy, you have to go to this university. And I had the privilege a few years ago of even uh, being involved with a debate uh, there at that university. And uh, as a result of that, 
then they gave me free access to their uh, their archives, their uh, some of their ancient documents that go back thousands of years, and it's ref it was refreshing for me to see non-biblical records that are confirmed by the Bible. And um, they were not Islamic uh, records. They were historical records. They were kept there because it was considered the most uh, secure place in all of the Islamic world and all of the Egypt and of all of Egypt, for that matter. And it was um, quite amazing. And uh, I spent uh, a number of hours there, a number of days doing uh, research and uh, gathering information. So tonight, uh, some of the information that I'll be sharing with you is what I gleaned from that gold mine of, uh, of information. Verse number one, chapter 17. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin. Uh, this is the King James Version, sin. The... Uh, uh, there was uh, one that was called Sin, S-I-N-N. -N. King James dropped one of the ends, okay? Um, uh, after their journeys, uh, pay attention to this. According to the commandment of the Lord, God was directing them. Is that what, is that what you understand with this? That God was directing them. All right. And pitched in Rephidim. And we've, uh, Paul and I have been to Rephidim a number of times. We've uh, stayed at a, uh, uh, there's a convent there that uh, rents out the rooms. We've stayed there in those rooms. It's a very nice place now, not so much then. And there was no water for the people to drink. That doesn't mean there wasn't any water. The water wasn't any good. The water was sulfur salt. And uh, there was a river that, kind of a semi-river that went, uh, through that uh, little oasis of Rephidim, and it was horrible, horrible, horrible water. And because the water was no good, even the oasis was no good, uh, the palm trees and such that were there were dying because it just wasn't any good. And uh, it was no good for plants or for animals or for human consumption. Wherefore the people did chide or argued with uh, Moses and uh, to the point of hating him, and uh, saying, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why chide you with me? Or why are you, why are you coming down on me? I can't do anything about this. Uh, you're actually tempting the Lord. He's, he's the one that led us here. He directed us to come here. Now, God knew what was here, but he told us to come here anyway. All right. And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Moses cried to the Lord. And interesting what Moses said. He prayed to the Lord and he says, What shall I do? Under these people. Moses put the responsibility upon his shoulders. Now what now, Lord, you direct me, what am I supposed to do about this? Rather than relying upon the direction of the Lord to the people. 
and they are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, to take it in thine hand, and go. And behold, I, this is God, I will stand on the rock. Okay? I'll stand before thee upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And this is an amazing thing. And Moses did so inside of the elders of Israel. Now, this had never been done before. There's never a record in all of history, up to this point, of water coming out of a rock. Never. We have water coming out of the skies. We have raw water bubbling up out of the ground. In uh, some of the mythologies, of the Egyptian mythologies that happened, uh, Osiris uh, was in the underworld one time, and he wanted to come to the surface, and he rode to the surface on the bubbles of water. And so that, that was nothing new. Uh, and so even, even their mythologies uh, capitalize on things that perhaps could be logical. But water out of a rock? <laughs> that never even entered into the thoughts of the myth writers. It just, it just wasn't there. It, it, it's, it's illogical. But Moses didn't even question it. He did what God told him to do. And he called the name of the place Misha. It's still called Misha. I'll get into that later. Which means temptation. And uh, Mariba, which means strife. Because of the chiding of the children of Israel, because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, we have had the privilege of being, like I said, to uh, uh, Rephidim. And there was a, uh, well, just let me draw you a picture of it, okay? Look at a couple of different things. Um, first of all, the Israelites uh, made it down that far. Let's look. Uh, okay, this is uh, just the Mediterranean Sea. Y'all see that? Okay. Uh, this is the Nile River, uh, the Red Sea. And this is the Sinai Peninsula over here. Israel is back up here. And, uh, you know, there, there's, there's some people today, and uh, uh, Sinai goes around like that. There's uh, some preachers and historians and so forth today saying that the Israelites went uh, through a, a couple of small saltwater lakes 
called the Reed Sea. And these, um, it's kind of like little marshy, marshy areas. And so they went through that Reed Sea area, and uh, it kind of takes the miracle of the, uh, of the water and the dividing of the, of the Red Sea out of the way. Um, unfortunately, these uh, historians or these preachers in, in primarily uh, forgot to read uh, history because uh, the historical records indicate that at this same time that Pharaoh Samasian had built um, a uh, defense system and there was a wall from the Mediterranean Sea and there was a gate uh, protecting against um, invasions from the east, from the uh, nomads that were coming from Saudi Arabia and nomads that were coming from Yemen and Oman. And so there was, uh, they had made a habit of uh, invading Egypt and invading the, uh, uh, the, the region that was uh, uh, in that area. It was kind of a, uh, a straight shot to uh, the Goshan, which was the most fertile area of Egypt. And there they would destroy the crops and things like that. So this pharaoh uh, built a wall right here that went about a mile into the Red Sea. And they only had one gate right there. And that gate was controlled by guards of the Egyptian army. And so there was only one way through that gate, or one way through that wall, and that was through that gate. Well, the Egyptians were after the Israelis, if you'll re remember that, the Hebrews. So uh, they certainly wouldn't want to go through the gate. And so the Israelites had to go all the way down to where the wall was not and then go across. And this is why they stopped, because where they went across, it was approximately uh, seven miles across. And it was approximately 180 to 230 feet deep. So they stopped. And they said, what do we do now? God told Moses, I didn't tell you to stop. Keep going. Well, they still didn't keep going until they looked behind them and found that Pharaoh's army was after them. And the fact that Pharaoh's army was after them I gave them a little bit more motivation to get serious about what God wanted. And finally, Moses did respond, stretched out his rod over the Red Sea. The east wind blew all night long. And the wind that blew, if you look up that word that means gale force or hurricane force winds, blew all night long, separating uh, the water, drying out the land. And then they were able to cross on dry land in the middle of the night. The next morning, when the Egyptians came after them, then the waters came back. And so that's how they got across. Now they're traveling through the Sinai, and they were going to Mount Horeb. There's two mountains. You've got Mount Horeb here. You've got Mount Sinai over here. You've got the Gulf of Aqaba here. Now, so this is Sinai, 
This is Horeb. H-O-R-E-B. Don't I have good writing skills? Well, today, if you go to Sinai for a tour, they will take you to Mount Horeb and call it Mount Sinai. Because there's two actual, two different mountains, and if you'll read the uh, the portion uh, about their uh, travels through Sinai in, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, it's very obvious that there are two separate mountains, of which there was, Sinai and Horeb. Horeb is not a volcano. It's just a uh, limestone um, iron ore uh, mountain. And, uh, but Sinai is a volcano. And Sinai is very, uh, it's a very uh, uh, dangerous volcano to the point that the Egyptian government, uh, when, uh, when the British was controlling Egypt from the year 1882 to uh, 1952, uh, during that time, the British restricted anyone from going to Sinai because it was too dangerous. And then when the Egyptians then took over their own government in 1952, then they maintained that same level. So you can't get to Sinai now unless you're through special, uh, special permission for the government. And then the government officials go with you over there because it's too dangerous. But you can go to Horeb and you can climb it just like Moses did. And uh, they got little uh, places up there that, uh, the Catholic Church has a church up. Uh, the Catholics have a church up there. The Orthodox have a church on top, and you can uh, you can climb it. Uh, you can start at the bottom of it about three o'clock in the morning, and you can be at the top of Mount Horeb just in time for the sun to come up. It's very nice, and they uh, and they uh, they flop the name around. Uh, you know, some guys will tell you it's Horeb, other guys will tell you it's Sinai. So it's kind of a combination of both. And uh, for for tourism purposes, but in reality, it is uh, the, the the real Horeb, and it's located about in this area, just uh, uh, probably about fifty miles up from the um, uh, the water of the Persian Gulf. Uh, I mean, of the um, uh, Red Sea uh, into that area. Uh, Rafidim is right there. Now. <clears throat> Rephidim is, a, uh, is an oasis in this area. And like I said, this river came across like this, but the water wasn't any good. And uh, in that area, there was a... Um, um, Mount Horeb is located approximately right here. And over in this area, Right in here, there was a large uh, depressed area like this. And the distance across this area is approximately 13 miles. And this way is approximately 8 miles. And, and it's... Uh, it, it drops from the surrounding mountains that are around it. Uh, the height of these mountains are probably a plus uh, 280 
to 350 feet from, uh, uh, from the ground level. And the depression then goes down probably a minus uh, 12 to a minus 15 feet. And so it's just like a big swimming pool type thing, except it's natural. It's uh, natural dirt, rock, and whatever. Uh, we don't know what caused it. The, uh, the speculation is that many, many years ago, and the thousands of years ago, there was a meteorite that uh, struck there and caused the mutation. Very well may have been. There's iron ore all over the place in there. And there was a, um, and this distance here is uh, approximately uh, 13 miles. Now, connecting this uh, de detention is a very large swell that goes all the way down into this area and it connects to the oasis. Then there's another swell that connects into a smaller one that connects into this one. And uh, from the top of Horeb, you can look down into this area. And it's, um, in fact, you look through, throughout the whole area. And the, uh, what the people were complaining about is that the water was no good. And every place you went, whether you sent scouts out to Horeb, whether you went north, whether you went south, wherever you went, there was no water. There was no supply of water that you could use. Now, these Israelites, who had seen the miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea, who had seen the miracle of turning bitter water to good water, uh, not long afterwards, who had just experienced the, and were continuing to experience, the miracle of the manna that's provided for them daily, now are saying, God, are you with us or not? If you really loved us, if you were really leading us, if you really were in control, why did you bring us here? If you are leading us, didn't you realize there wasn't any water here? Didn't you realize that the water that was here was no good? And that wherever we went, in any direction we went, there was nothing? And you led us here anyway? Why? We certainly do not understand that. And then it got to the point to where Moses feared for his life. Because they were quite upset, say the least, to the point that they took their wrath out upon their connection to this God, which was Moses. Then the Lord told Moses to, you separate yourself from the people, take the elders with you and go for a walk. And what they did, they went for a walk up this natural swell for 13 miles until they got to this indentation place, right in the center, this area. And uh, Paul and I have been there a number of times. Um, there's a huge rock. And the rock is part of a, a meteorite. And this rock is uh, probably at least. Uh, 15, 20 feet tall, 
and spread out probably as large as a football field. And it's, um, it's just sitting there. Now, uh, presently, you're not allowed to go to it. And the reason for that is that uh, you used to be able to, to go there as a tourist and, and view it and, um, and, to see, and see the rock. But uh, in World War I, there was a man from Belgium uh, was so taken back by this, the evidence of this great miracle of God that he claimed it as his own. Uh, you know, the, the, the British were still, um, you know, the British were still in control uh, of the area, and Belgium was a, an ally of Britain at that time, and he was a, an officer uh, of, uh, of the, in the Belgian army. And uh, so he just kind of assumed and presumed uh, a lot of things. And um, the, uh, the presumption that he made was that um, this is nothing but just desert area. This is areas no good. So I'll just stake a claim to this. And he decided that uh, he was going to be, um, uh, he was going to mark this stone in this area um, for himself and so that he could recognize it from, uh, from a plane from above. He tried to paint it blue. <laughs> and he got about half of it painted. And the British uh, discovered what he was doing. And uh, they, of course, they arrested him, and he uh, was put in prison, died in prison in 1937. But that uh, you can still see a lot of the blue on that rock now. And so from that point on, uh, the British restricted anyone from going there, any visitors going, and now the Egyptians do the same thing. You can't go there unless through uh, special uh, governmental permission, which, uh, which we had when we... Uh, when we uh, viewed it, but well, I wasn't going to say that. We we snuck in there, and <laughs> and, um, and but they did find out that uh, I mean they did give their approval, but it was after we was already there and back. <laughs> Is it well since since you're still alive? Because uh, there is a lot of terrorists in that area. Since you're still alive, we'll go ahead and give you permission. Then. So, But anyway, Moses went down this swell with the elders, and the elders stayed in this area, and Moses went up to the rock where God was standing. And then the miracle took place. Moses struck the rock, and uh, I was looking in my Bible because I have it written down. The, according to the Egyptian records, the water went up in a geyser um, six doffs high. And a doff is, a, is an ancient Egyptian uh, method of measurement, you know, kind of like feet and inches. And one doff is equal to five feet. So six doffs meant that the water squirted up 30 feet in the air. And it continued to do so for many time for for a long time, to the point that this entire area filled up with water. 
and it filled up to uh, not only to the level of, uh, of the ground, but actually went up into uh, the sides of the hills and the mountains that went all the way around. And it was one of the largest reservoirs of fresh water of the ancient world in that region. And the water was pure and it was cold and it was very nice. And it was certainly enough to feed or to service uh, 4 million or 12 million. It didn't matter. There was enough water for everything and everybody. And it, the word got out about this great miracle. And the Amalekites who were over in Saudi Arabia, uh, they said, we, we, the, we want that water. And so they came to try to confiscate it, and that's when Joshua defeated him in battle at the same place. And then uh, Moses was with Ur and Aaron on, uh, on the mountain looking down on the battle that was taking place in, the, um, in the, the oasis itself, and Joshua defeated them. But it was enough water to not only for them to meet their needs, and they stayed there in that area for uh, about nine months. And uh, it met all their needs, plus anything that they would want to carry with them uh, in storage. And um, it remained uh, such. The, I don't know if the geyser went that high forever, but it continued to supply water, uh, not only for the lake that it, that it caused, but also it rejuvenated the river that was uh, that was originally going through there and made that water uh, brand new, no more sulfur, no more salt. And uh, that's why that that Riffium oasis today is one of the uh, one of the most pleasant in all the Sinai Desert. And, uh, and like I said, Paul and I stayed there. We spent the night a couple of nights there. It's beautiful, beautiful there. And it's because of this refreshing. And it continued to uh, flow. The water continued to um, make a difference in that region up until the Islamic invasion of the year 640 AD. And so this originally took place at approximately 1534 BC. And then in 640 AD, right on the beginning of the Islamic uh, invasion of Egypt <coughs> in, which, um, in which Egypt uh, then changed from Christian to Muslim, there was a great earthquake in this area. And when the earthquake took place, it uh, uh, sealed up the water. And um, eventually, you know, since that time, all of it is evaporated and so forth. And so <coughs> you can still see um, where, the, where the lake was. You can still see the, um, what the water has done to the rock in, um, in carving out uh, places where the water was flowing and that type of thing. So it's quite inspirational. But um, unfortunately, when the Islamic invasion took place, then for some reason, God shut off the water. And since then, that area that was so beautiful and lush 
is uh, all but dried up and nothing is left of any greenery except in the oasis itself, just in Ruffian. But what I want to point out to you is that uh, uh, the, the people, you know, they originally, they, they uh, initially blamed God, then they blamed Moses, and they blamed God again. And uh, the last sentence that we, that we read in verse number seven, is the Lord among us or is he not? Now, that place is still called Mesha, uh, Mesha stone or blue stone or blue rock now. But it, it's still the same, the same word, Mesha. In our own lives, how many times do we say, Lord, are you here or not? Are, are you in this? Are you directing us or not? Even though if we would just stop and think back to all of the good things that he's done in our life, all the times he's healed us, all the times he's worked out financial miracles on our behalf, all the time he's come to the rescue of our children, all the times that he's protected us through absolute sure injury, but yet we escaped. When we're up against it, when there is no water, so to speak, no hope of getting beyond this point, we seem to forget about God's deliverance from our Red Seas and the deliverance from our enemies who are chasing us. And some of the first things we either say verbally or think in our head is, God, where are you? Are you still with me or not? Are you here or not? If, if you knew that this was going to take place and this was going to happen, why did you leave us here? God, it just don't make no sense. We have found ourselves over the last 35 years in missions work many times. And we would say, Lord, <laughs> if you knew this was going to take place, why didn't you get us out of here? Why didn't you move in such a way that we wouldn't have to go through all of this garbage? If you really loved us, then why are we starving to death, so to speak? Why do we have no refreshing? Why do we have no answer? Why do we have no direction? The only thing we see in all directions is torment of horror and dissatisfaction and no direction whatsoever. God, don't you care? Are you with us or not? And then in the midst of that, God never did talk to Moses and say, it's okay, my son. I'll, I'll work everything out for you. There's never an indication that Moses got a comforting hand. 
from his brother Aaron or from Ur or from anyone else. Not a comfort from Miriam, his sister, from, from no one. And not even from God. God did not come to him and say, Moses, you've done a great job. You've led these millions of people. You've listened to me. And I'm proud of what you've done. In the very midst of it, Moses cried to the Lord, What do you want me to do? I've done everything for you. What more can I do? <laughs> i got to get out of Washington. Is that all right? Excuse me. So in the midst of that, when he was perhaps fully expecting some type of comfort, fully expecting God to give him some type of direction just to, just to prevent from being killed by stoning. Then God spoke. And this is what he said. Take your leadership and go walk north. And go up to this rock that's up there. And I'll meet you up there. Real words of comfort, wasn't it? And what is going to a rock going to do to help quench the thirst of these people who are going to cut my head off? What, what kind of comfort is that? And what type of an assurance is God giving with this? Go to the rock. And then when you get to that rock, now this is the kicker. When you get to that rock, I want you to hit it with your stick. I would not make a good Moses. Because I might have just said, you've got to be kidding me. You mean, of all the things that you could tell me, to give me some assurance, you want me to go hit a rock with my rod. But Moses did it. And when he did, one of the greatest miracles ever recorded in the Word of God and in history took place. Because out of that rock, we don't know where the water came from. Obviously, it was underground someplace. But how it made it up through the rock, we don't know. And they never did find out. There were many, many, many attempts, especially by the British, to find out how it happened. They never found out. In our lives, 
I'm sure that there have been times in your life, and maybe you're going through it right now. You feel, God, if you're in control, why did you bring me here? Why am I at this stage in my life? Why am I here not knowing where to go? How to turn? Having problems with Congressman Omar. Uh, personal uh, attacks. And we were discussing it, and, and Paula says this. Well, the Lord has been impressing upon me to pray for her. And I didn't question her. I don't ever question her about what God tells her to do. But, in, but, I, but to me, I said, Lord, I'm glad you didn't tell me to pray for her. Because <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't, wouldn't. And I would have just left my stick behind. <laughs> and uh, not hit that rock. Because it's just not logical. But when you do what God says, then the rock splits. And life's water came up. And she feels that as she prays for her, her hard heart is going to be broken and the life's giving water of salvation is going to come into her life. Which will be the greater miracle. And so, in your life, in your situation, God knows it, God understands it, God sympathizes with it, but don't be surprised if he asks you to do something that's totally illogical. But if you do it, it will work. Welcome to Canaan, a small indigenous community here on the west coast of Colombia. In recent years, Canaan has grown tremendously. The people here have a heart for God and for sharing His love. This is where the Cubit Foundation does their work. Over the years, Cubit has worked on developing the community in many ways, and by doing so, they've developed personal relationships and bonds that will last a lifetime. Lo recibimos con mucho amor, recibimos con mucho aprecio, con mucho afecto, porque sabiendo que si esta persona viven tan lejos, no nos conoce y nos viene a visitar, eso para nosotros es muy satisfactorio y, y, y toca mi corazón de una manera especial. 
Brad Charles is one of the leaders behind Cubit and their work in Canaan, Colombia. His passion is for helping people in need around the world and doing God's work out here on the mission field. The Cubit Foundation has done some incredible work here thus far, and God's presence is truly evident. Partnerships with local Colombian churches, Cubit has taken part in service to the village of Canaan. And with your help, Cubit will continue to serve them and many more around the world. When people give to Cubit, I want them to go. I want them to go with me. And I want them to experience this. Lo imposible para el hombre es posible para Dios. To find out more and to become a part of what Cubit is doing here in Colombia, log on to cubitfoundation.org. That's cubitfoundation.org. The Chase with Dr. Ron Charles is sponsored by supporters of the Cubit Foundation. Visit cubitfoundation.org for Dr. Ron's books and discover how you can support this global ministry.